thought you could never be frightened by a television movie, watch what happens to the citizens of Salem's Lot. Is something evil killing the people in Salem's Lot, or are they killing each other? Run! No! A terrifying three-hour special movie presentation Tuesday. Watch it with someone you trust. This is CBS. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode four of Hanging with Toby Hooper, the official all things Toby Hooper podcast. I am one of your Hanging with Toby Hooper hosts, Patrick Bromley, joined as always by my horror BFF and Hanging with Toby Hooper co host, Heather Wixon. Hi, Heather. Hello, Patrick. I hope you're prepared for all my candor. I am so ready. I love this. If nothing else, this is the movie where, like, when I say candor, I say candor. <laughs> this is a this is going to be an interesting one because I won't bury the lead here. This is there's two Toby Hoopers that I know definitively you love more than me, and this is one. Yes, of them. it is. This is this is number. T- this is my top my my second favorite of Toby Hooper. Okay. Yeah, it is. Is there a it three? Is. I know what one is. What's three? Three is Texas Chainsaw. Okay. Yeah, so far. Got it. We'll see. If, we'll see how things change as we revisit things. But I bet they don't change very much. But I could be. Wrong. I really don't think my. I don't know if my top three are going to change much. Yeah, I'll be honest. That's it's a pretty solid top three. So it would be hard to displace one of those. Yes. Uh, yeah, it's going to be tough. But it'll be fun to rank everything at the end. Totally. Uh, so Salem's Lot, I'm going to read the plot description from IMDb. There are many plot descriptions. I'm going to read the one that's one sentence because I don't want to read full paragraphs. A novelist and a young horror fan attempt to save a small New England town, which has been invaded by vampires. (laughs) Yes. Sorry, I did a little, little thing there. Yes. Uh, so was, it, was this like, did you watch this a lot when you were young or did you not see this till you were a little older? Didn't see this until I was older. Okay. So that's probably the difference for us. Because you watched it a lot as a, as a kid. Yeah. I grew up on Salem's Lot. Okay. Did it scare you as a kid? Frick. Yeah. Oh really? my okay. God. Yes. Yes. Barlow to me was easily and probably still is because of just how unnatural he is uh it was the scariest vampire to me ever he's a great vampire like jerry dandridge he's he's scary but he's sexy you know sure muscles like, to be fair the blue skin kind of throws me off a little i like bit. i like bald guys but i love the 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 hissing the snarling the nonverbal ness yeah. of him which is obviously very different from the book um the blue the contacts, the way it just looks like he's just kind of almost falling apart, which I know partially was the makeup itself too. <laughs> um, it just, he feels like such of a different time. Um, you know, you could have told me that he was like related to the Nosferatu from the original Nosferatu movie. Right, and I'd be like, right. sure. You know, cause they, they look like they could have been bros. Um, yeah, this was, I saw the original Salem slot uh, when I was five. It okay. was actually the, in the very same week was the first time I ever saw Salem's Lot and The Thing. So it was a very traumatizing week for Heather. Sure. Because these are not movies I would recommend sharing with five-year-olds. <laughs> I mean, Salem's Lot now probably, but never, never, no, not The Thing. We could credit um, that week with making you a horror fan, though. It might have. It might have solidified it. But um, yeah, this movie just became such a part of like my DNA as a kid. Um, because I was obsessed with it. I was already like, I think at this point in my life, I was already even obsessed with writing. And I really loved a story about a writer who conquers evil. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, you know, obviously there's some parallels where King was probably working through some stuff. And I love the fact that there are so many of his stories where writers are the protagonists. Yes. Um, but this for me was like, Pretty much up until the time my, you know, Fright Night or Lost Boys hit. Like, this was my definitive vampire movie. It is funny that uh, 
This is a Stephen King story. Obviously, it's adapted from the Stephen King novel. It airs in November of 1979 on CBS as a two-part miniseries. Uh, this is Toby Hooper's first kind of big television film. Um, but a, a, a movie about a writer, or rather a story about a writer battling, you know, the evil that's spreading through a small sleepy town, it might as well be a parody of Stephen King. Yeah, like you have to wonder, like, was he just like looking out his windows and being like, I wonder what's going on over there. I bet <laughs> I bet I could do something about it. Every story is about an evil quietly taking over a small sleepy town and the writer who has to put a stop to it. And I say this yeah. as somebody who would name Stephen King as my favorite author. I am not throwing shade at Stephen King. I love Stephen King so much. Oh, no, believe me, that is like one of like, you know, I, I wouldn't call it my cinematic catnip because it's not always just in the movies, but like. Stories about writers having to like conquer something like, yeah, I'm in. I'm I am always 100 percent in. And then also, too, I think for me as well, because in the 80s, like, yeah, there were horror fans, but it wasn't until like the mid to late 80s when like horror fandom like started to find a footing. So Mark Petrie to me was really interesting um because he was like this kid who grew up a monster fan. Yeah. And I really loved this stuff. And it was sort of like the first time I like connected with a character in a way that felt like like we could have been friends he could have been me um and i never really saw that represented and i really love that like and i love that also too mark petrie is an aspiring writer Mm -hmm. so there was so much for me to glom onto with this movie as a kid um that like i i mean i i joke that like i i said something like about like i've seen this like billions of times right there's definitely i'm in the hundreds um at this point well yeah also too because when i was writing um monster squad and when i was doing the first volume of monsters makeup and effects i would always like sit in my bedroom hunker down and i would just put on salem's lot Mm -hmm. while i was writing i like i like movies about writers when i'm writing it's like my thing Mm -hmm. Uh, i'm i'm such a dork i know (laughs) um so i mean i can't even tell you i would say probably between those two books there was probably at least like 40 or so viewings of Salem's Lot. Holy Because I would play it, because if I was writing for seven or so, seven or so hours a day, I'd probably watch it twice, at least. And then it's a, start it's it a again. Good, uh, it's a good hangout movie. It really is, and that's what I love about it. And like, I, Look, I get modern audiences may not gel with the, the time that it takes, and it breathes, and it really just lets you sort of saunter into Jerusalem's Lot, basically like your Ben Mears, and like really lets you get comfortable in this town before all hell breaks loose. I love that. Like, I honestly could watch another two hours of it and be totally and completely fine Um, because there's so much good stuff. And there is stuff that, like, they omitted from the book or they truncated or they combined characters and things like that, Um, which is fine because it makes sense for TV, you know. I mean, the fact is they tried for years just to even get to make this into just a regular movie and they couldn't do it. Like, they, everybody took a swing at it. Nobody could do it. And so then that's when they realized like, oh, no, we have to do a TV movie because this is going to have to be two parts. And it's at this point that I should mention, I should give a shout out to our friend Brian Kazmierski, who gave me a thumb drive of the theatrical cut of Salem's Lot that was released overseas. And I did not have a chance to watch it yet. I wanted to watch it, obviously, before this episode, and I just did not have the opportunity to. I was lucky that I got to watch the TV version. Um but I'm very appreciative of that, and I want to check it out to see what's different because the fact that they cut this down to just a single feature, I find fascinating. Yeah, I don't think I've actually ever. I feel like I remember once because, like, we watched it off of somebody like who had taped it off the TV, and it was on a VHS tape because they like I think they like re-aired it in like '81 or something like that. I'm sure. Yeah, I want to say there was some sort of re-airing of it because I remember watching it off of somebody's VHS that was like. From so I don't even know if maybe even as a kid, maybe the original first time maybe it was I saw the theatrical cut. I don't know exactly, but I never. But the things that like are now like in the Blu-ray and stuff, like it's all familiar to me. So I don't know if it's like this weird fever dream, like if those things just sort of merged. Like I can watch like the TV version of Terror in the Isles, and I can tell you exactly what almost frame by frame what's different yeah. than the theatrical version of Turn in the Isles. This one I'd be really fascinated to go back and watch because also I think it probably would hurt my heart a little bit, but you know. 
Yeah, because there's a know, lot of character stuff. Right. You know all that stuff's coming out, you know? And as someone who loves Stephen King, who loves Toby Hooper, and who loves Stephen King miniseries, like I grew up on, you know, in the 90s, it was very fashionable to turn Stephen King into miniseries uh, because we had it and we had the stand and we had the Tommy knockers and we had the Langoliers uh, directed sure. by Tom Holland. Um, uh. And so I was a big fan of Stephen King miniseries. I never saw Rose Red, but that was another one. Uh, the Shining, Mick Garris's The Shining. I mean, there were so many in the 90s and I was a fan of all the ones I saw. Um this viewing of Salem's Lot, and I'm wondering if part of it was because I was watching it specifically through your eyes, because I know what a fan you are, uh, was the best the movie has ever played for me. It's, it is like, like, I just, I love this world. Like, I love the fact, you know, that like every character feels lived in. Like, there's so many times when you watch a movie and it's like, it's almost like you're watching like, a character being born on screen yeah. for the sake of you watching that where this it's like you are Ben you're coming in into the middle of these people's lives like you know Bonnie's already screwing around you know on Kali and you know it's like everybody's dealing with their shit already and like and then all of this stuff starts to unfurl with with uh the evilness with Straker and Barlow and everything and it's just I it's it's so intoxicating to me. It's such a weird word to use, but like <laughs> I completely fall under its spell. And it's interesting you mentioned Tom Holland because there is no Fright Night without Salem's Lot. Correct. Because like not only does he borrow set pieces, dialogue, <laughs> setups, like characters, like there's no way that Charlie, you know, Charlie Brewster is not Mark Petrie for the 80s. Right. Like that's just well, you know what and, I mean. And and Straker is sort of the Jonathan. What's his face, right? Jonathan Stark, yes. Stark, yeah, the familiar. Because uh, yeah, during that scene at the end, I was like, well, this is right out of Friday Night. <laughs> like, it absolutely is, and it's it's like this, everything's on the staircase. Yeah, like, exactly. You know, it's so fascinating. So it's it's interesting to me because like, you know, so many people kind of like, you know, we we've said it before. We're gonna say it again. Like you know. Toby wasn't a guy who got a whole lot of respect throughout his career, but holy shit, he does phenomenal work in this. And anybody who says like, you know, as we move on in his filmography that, oh, there's no way he could have done this or that, like, watch this movie. There is craftsmanship. There's genuine storytelling going on. Like, this isn't him, like, being held by the hand by some producers because they were TV producers. Like, the only thing that they were doing on the producing side of things was just making sure, like, they had to cut stuff so it'd be okay to air on TV. Right. Like this is Toby through and through. And I love it. Like this is to me is like Toby Hooper. And this essentially is what gets him poltergeist. Correct. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. That's what I thought. Um, yeah. yeah. I mean the, you know, Toby Hooper's major, I think two contributions to the movie are one that he retains the Stephen King of it all that, that he fights to, make this town feel like a real place that he fights to make sure that these people feel like real people. And as you said, uh, they feel lived in. It's a large cast of characters, but you don't lose track of anybody. Um, and his other major contribution is, you know, that he wants to make it genuinely scary and scary in a different way than he had made, you know, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre or Eaten Alive. This is definitely Toby Hooper working in a different key. And it's a key to which he's really well suited. And and I don't think he works in this key for most of his career. Like he's rarely making a movie that vibes like this one. Um, most of his movies tend to be turned up to 11 and pretty crazy and, you know, sometimes borderline silly on purpose. And this movie is not that. This movie is slower and more methodical and more gothic and um, much more kind of character based than it is driven by its tone. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. No, it totally does. I'm I'm so glad you mentioned gothic because it does feel sort of like the end of an era, era. if you will. Um, because 
we didn't get much gothic horror once you know 1980 hit you know it was kind of like this was sort of the the swan song of like that time of of horror storytelling which is again why i love it so much because you know as i my mom loved dark shadows when i was growing up and like every once in a while there'd be like reruns or something on and we'd always watch it and like it feels very much like in line with like dark shadows which was like its own thing yeah um and then also too like there is a deliberation to how everything is is paced in this movie how every scene contains something that ties into something else do you know what i mean like yeah and it's and it never feels like it's slowing down to like give you unnecessary info all of the info that they're giving you all matters because it's all like it's it's just like the most beautiful horror puzzle ever created (laughs) i love it i just love it i'm gushing i'm sorry no that's okay Um, that's what this podcast is for yeah, but I, I and I think it's so great too because you mentioned like all the characters, all of them, like they all have story arcs. There's there's so much going on in it, but it never feels too busy. And I will say the only film that I feel like has really gotten close to this feeling when it comes, especially when it comes to Stephen King adaptations, is I would say it chapter one. Because I think tra- it chapter two kind of loses that focus a little bit. Yeah, it chapter two is messier than i wish it was <laughs> because yeah, they, i like it i, I still do too. like it but i do too for how weird it's willing to be but i just think if they had like stuck the landing on two the way they had on one we'd be talking about it as like a top five stephen king adaptation yeah because like one for me is beautiful like i cry like it's like it's it hits the notes it it very much feels in line with what Toby was able to do with, with Salem's lot. Yeah. Um, part two feels like a guy who now has been given a little more free reign and maybe should have been pulled in a little bit um, because it's, it's just totally like when you watch them back to back, it is jarring. Yeah. Actually, I would say also the other one I would say too, that gets pretty close is Dr. Sleep. Dr. Sleep rules. Oh, it's so good. Yeah. And it's funny because also speaking of the influence of Salem's Lot, like Mike Flanagan, Midnight Mass to me is basically like the Salem's Lot remake. We never knew we needed, but we love it. And it's amazing. Yeah, I could see that. Oh, it totally is. It's like yeah. somebody comes back to a, a small town after being away for a while. Um, a, an invading force comes in. A vampire that doesn't talk townspeople they get caught up in it we get all these little details about all their lives um it's far more philosophical i think than salem's lot is yeah um but it's beautiful it's a beautiful series but it's slow too like you know what i mean like it takes it's time to sort of just breathe and let you exist right um you know but there's in fact i remember when we did the press day for it i wore my salem's lot t-shirt and Mike nice. was just like, yeah, that, that's, that's, that's a perfect shirt. And I was like, yeah, <laughs> it is. <laughs> before, I like, I even, I before I even knew like what a sort of acolyte of Stephen King, Mike Flanagan was when I, back when I saw Oculus, I remember saying like, that's the best Stephen King story that Stephen King didn't write. And then yeah, watching absolutely. the rest of his career be so indebted to Stephen King has been really fascinating. Again, not to take anything away from Mike Flanagan, who's like one of the absolute best people doing it right now. Oh, for sure. And I think it's also interesting, too, because, like, it felt like for a while, like, even, like, as a director, even, like, sort of as a champion of the genre, Mick Garris was that guy, right? Yes, for sure. For a long time. So it's like, it feels like Mike Flanagan's, like, our new Mick Garris, but it's different. Like, because they're, like, I think Mick was really super faithful because of his relationship with Stephen King. Yeah. Where Mike has been a little more free. Yeah. But not in a way that feels like not disrespectful, but sort of not truly tuned in to King's work, if yeah. that makes any kind of sense. Um, it's so fascinating. I'm like, and then I'm like, in 20 years, like, who's the new Mike Flanagan then? Hmm. It's, 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 I don't know. Hopefully hmm. we'll still be around to find out. <laughs> you might be. I, I will not be. Yeah, we'll see. We may all not be. I don't know. <laughs> We'll Happy see what happens. Yeah. Um, obviously, we'll get to this. 
but I'm just going to ask now while I'm thinking of it because <laughs> I have not seen the 2004 TNT miniseries of Salem's Lot. Have you with Rob Lowe and Rutger Hauer and Donald Sutherland? You know, I feel really mean saying this, but no, when they announced it, I was like, why? Okay. Honestly, I was, I was one of those. I was like, why, why would you do this? Um, because this works. Um, and I knew it wasn't going to be the same. Um, and no disrespect to that cast. Cause you know, I mean, I don't know if Rob Lowe would have been my first choice, but sure. Rucker Howard is an inspired choice and Donald Sutherland is very intriguing as well. Um, but yeah, I just was not into the idea. And so I, I didn't, I, and honestly, and this is no disrespect to McGarris either, but I never watched the new shining either, even though I know it was more faithful to the book. Um, There's a I lot like, of, Oh, go ahead. I was going to say, cause I like King's book for different reasons than I like Kubrick's movie, if that makes sense. You know what I mean? Oh. So I just, I didn't need that marriage. It was like, I'm good. It makes sense. A hundred percent. I think the, you know, the, the McGarris miniseries is a lot more faithful to the book. It has its own series of limitations, some of which are the miniseries format, some of which are casting choices. Not 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 even Steven Weber, who I think does a great job, you know, in the shadow of Jack Nicholson. But like um, I there's a lot of stuff in that in that Shining miniseries that I like. I'm actually really excited that Scream Factory is putting it out on blue because I want to revisit it. I'm ready. To, I'm ready to give it a shot now. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I'm, I'm emotionally like, OK, I can get past it. But like in the early 2000s, I was like, no, get out of here. Well, and I think you'll be pleasantly surprised because it has been shit talked for 30 years. You know, like, how dare they touch The Shining? How dare Mick Garris try to remake Kubrick? And it's like, well, he's not remaking Kubrick, you dummies. He's just doing a new adaptation of the book. Yeah, exactly. But I was too dumb to see that back in the day. Well, no. Listen, I'm sure when they announced it, I was like, why would they do that? You know, like The Shining seems like it should be one of those untouchable things. And now as we get older, we realize, well, nothing's untouchable. You know, I thought sequelizing the shining was a bad idea. And then I thought making a movie version of a sequel to the shining was a bad idea. And then I see it and I'm like, Mike Flanagan did this weird miracle movie. That's both an adaptation and a sequel to the book and a sequel to the movie. I, that movie works on so many levels. It's, insane what he does with dr sleep we're so far afield from salem's lot um because as we're well we're still in the king field though (laughs) as we're recording this there exists a new adaptation of salem's lot that just may never see the light of day i'm i'm so freaking bummed because here's the thing like i was when they first announced it i was like you know okay because i get modern audiences maybe not gelling with toby's i get it People want fast. They're on their phones. Heaven forbid they stop and actually pay attention to storylines <laughs> and dialogue. Whatever. Okay. Um, so I was like, I'm I'm jazzed for it. And I actually like Gary Dauberman. Um, I really liked um, it wasn't Annabelle Creation. Um, the one when they're actually at the house. He did that. Uh, was- sure. Annabelle comes home. Yes. Is that what it's called? It seems so like goofy. Yeah, it is Annabelle Cubs Home. Yeah. The one with the werewolf. Um, which actually kind of feels very infused with Stephen King notes to it. Definitely. Um, as was they go around the room and stuff like that. Um, so I wasn't like James Wan's producing, Gary Doberman's directing. Okay, let's see what happens. Um, and I'm legitimately bummed out because I mean it's never gonna touch this iteration of the story for me and never um but i want to see it yeah because I, I i you know i love the book i'm so bummed that i never got to watch chapelthwaite or chapelthwaite um because that's this little mini story that's in the book uh about how all of this evil sort of came to jerusalem's lot i think it has adrian brody in it and it was like on stars or epics or something yeah i never saw it and I just never got to see it because I don't have that channel and stuff. Yeah, so, yeah. but if it's literally, if, I'm at the age now where I'm like, anything that's related to like this world, this story, these characters, I'm in. So I, I'd heard 
it was rumored like towards the end of the last year that it was just going to go straight to Max. I hope we at least get that. I don't want it to get Batgirled because that would just be, I mean, I hate that Batgirl got Batgirled. Um, but I just want this. Like, I don't understand. Like you just leave money on the table like that. Yeah. Like it's done. Just put it out. Like, I don't get it. I'm looking at the IMDb page right now and no one is credited with the name Barlow. Oh, really? Yeah. There's a striker, but no Barlow. Interesting. Maybe it's like a really secret thing. It might be. Oh, maybe that's like a really big reveal in this version. I don't know. Yeah, I was actually trying to think about who's in it. I was like, I don't know. I didn't know a single cast member until I pulled up the IMDb page. And Ben Mears is played by Lewis Pullman of Top Gun Maverick and Bill Pullman's son fame. Uh, excuse me. Also, The Strangers Pray at Night. Uh, that's right. He is in The Strangers Pray at Night. Yeah. I forget that. Uh, you know, if you go to Google, it says that William Sadler is playing Barlow. And now I'm I into really it. Movie. I really need this movie. And it has uh, P. Lou Azbeck is playing Straker. Straker he was yeah. really, he's really good in uh, Overlord. And um, I really liked him in that. I still haven't seen Overlord. I feel like a garbage what? person. Yeah. No, you're not a garbage person, but go watch it. It's so much fun. Yeah, I definitely need to see it. Yeah, dude. It has like uh, Kurt Russell's kid in it, too. I know. I like him. Oh, my gosh. Oh, it, it's so rules hard. Okay. I'm gonna give you my I'm gonna give you my video login so you can go watch it. Woo-hoo. It's awesome. Um yeah, like I it's it's and what also makes this a little bit sad too is that we were gonna do this episode a few weeks ago. Life happens. Oh, right, right, right. Publishing things happen, holidays yeah. happen, we have to wrap up twenty twenty three. And unfortunately we recently just lost David Soul. Yeah. And it's it's weird because that one kind of hurt me. And I wasn't expecting that. Like, you know, I mean, this is a movie that's now like going to be 45 years old this year. Holy shit. <laughs> um, and, you know, so nobody lives forever. We've already lost, you know, some of the older cast and things like that. Um, but it sounds so weird. But like, I didn't like growing up, like I didn't have a lot of like, quote unquote, role models, I guess. But like for me, like Ben Mears was my role model and i know people make fun of david soul's performance in the movie i even remember hearing like toby didn't really want him but the reason he was cast is because he was a tv star this was going on tv they knew it would get ratings um but i think he's great like i think there is sort of this pensiveness to the way that he performs in this movie that it's like he always takes this like little beat before he says something where I find it really like intriguing to watch and I'm so bummed he's gone. Like he would have been a bucket list interview for me. I would have loved to talk to him about this, but of course like all his obituaries are just about Starsky and Hutch and I get it, you know, right? but you know, you know, he was my early (laughs) eighties. Again, this viewing, because I'm someone who was always like, "Ah, I kind of wish somebody else was playing Ben Mears and this viewing either colored by, your affection for David soul, his recent passing, the fact that the movie was playing better than it ever had. I appreciated his performance more than I ever have. Um, it's still, you know, it's a little bit TV still the same way that I watched the, it, the Tommy Lee <laughs> Wallace, it miniseries. And it I like so it, feels TV. Yeah. but it's so TV and the cast is all, you know, you're like Richard Thomas, really? And uh, Richard Thomas is a good actor. I'd have nothing against Richard Thomas, but like, uh, yeah, the only one in that series who kind of pops for me is John Ritter. John Ritter is so freaking good. And then like that for me, like, you know, we were of the age where we grew up watching like three's company. Right. 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 And, or like, you know, some of his movies and stuff like that, like, you know, stay tuned. I was, was stay tuned. And was stay tuned 90. Right. Stay tuned was like 92. Oh, I thought it was before it, but I remember like seeing him in this and I couldn't believe that that was Jack Tripper. Like I was like, what is this performance? This is phenomenal. Um, yeah, that one's like, I really, I will always have a fondness for it because holy shit, did it scare the crap out of me when it aired? I remember it was like a big deal. Oh my, I watched it. I I recorded it off of TV and cut out the commercials 
and watched it so many times. If I ever stayed home sick in like junior high or high school, I watched it. I wore that tape out. I had pictures of Tim Curry as Pennywise hanging in my locker in junior high. Like I was obsessed with it. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I was, I was very, well, I had Dizzy Hauser in my junior high locker, but yeah. Um, <laughs> it was a different time. What do you want? Uh, I had Vinny Del Pino. I think he was in mine too, though. Oh, dog. Them from, from, from TV Guide. Like I had covers of TV Guide in my junior high oh, locker. Oh, dog. Some vampires have moved <laughs> in, dog. <laughs> oh, now I want to see Doogie Hauser vampire killer. Um, I'd watch that. Um, yeah, like it's, it, you know, the funny thing for me though is like when I look at like all the different TV miniseries adaptations of Stephen King, to me, Salem's Lot feels like the least TV movie. Because uh, like there's, yeah, something, yeah, there's yeah. something about the way that it, like it or the stand was shot and framed and the way that it plays out just feels very much like, hey, this is meant for the small screen. And again, that's no, disrespect anybody i i think the stand hasn't aged particularly well i think it's still better than the series we got recently which i did um, not watch that paramount i watched the, thing i watched the first four episodes and they like they changed they changed the formatting of how things unfold which to me like why would you do that like yeah, that to right. me is like the crux of like how the horror of the story plays out. It was very, it was structured very differently. And I didn't like that. Um, some good performances though. Skarsgård's really good in it. Sure. Um, but I, I would still prefer to watch the original Stan miniseries, which that was my obsession. Like I had, I have the book version of the miniseries with the miniseries cover with Molly Ringwald and Gary Sinise on the cover. Oh, very nice. Yes. In fact, I went, I went to journalism camp between my junior and senior year, or what do you mean, my sophomore and junior? It was sophomore and junior year. Um, no, it was junior senior. I don't. Either way, so I had the book. I bought the book at the, the college bookstore because it was at Ball State, and I had to stay like an extra day because of how my flight worked out to getting in and out of Indiana. Because um, we just couldn't afford to drive because we had a shitty car. So I basically was like stuck on campus for like an extra like thirty six hours past everybody else. So I was like in this room by myself. There's no food. Um, I could eat out of like a vending machine. And I literally sat and like, I had read like a third of the stand. I finished <laughs> the stand before I got on my plane. Nice. I could not stop. Yeah. Uh, I was so obsessed. Um, but yeah, for me, that feels more meant for a small screen. I feel like if you put that on at a theater, like there's the seams are going to show. Where this to for me, sure. like yeah. there's no seams. They really... I don't know if it was just the craftsmanship, the way that they shot it, maybe even the format of how they shot it. Cause obviously, you know, they were probably shooting on film and things like that. Like, yeah, versus, yeah, yeah. you know, it just, it has such a different feeling. Like it doesn't feel restricted by the confines of being a small screen presentation. Some of that may be the scale of the whole thing, because when you're talking about the stand, Obviously, the scale of the stand is so big that doing it for TV is going to be limiting versus the scale of Salem's Lot, where it's like this one town. A lot of it is centered around this one house. Um, So you're able to do it for TV a little more easily. But I agree with you. It is much more cinematic than a number of these other miniseries, many of which were directed by feature directors. They weren't TV guys, you know, the same as Toby. Uh, yeah, I like that they brought in a lot of these feature directors to do these Stephen King miniseries. Um, but yeah, Salem's Lot is definitely one of, if not the most kind of cinematic of them all. Yeah, I also think it's, it's really interesting because like, obviously, we'll talk about Poltergeist more when we get to Poltergeist. But for me, Pretty there's soon. so many different I know it's like <laughs> Christmas all over again for me. Um, but for me, like, there's there's actually a lot of really interesting parallels if you kind of break down Poltergeist versus Salem's Lot. Because there, the idea of evil existing, you know, in this town, it's all centered around a house. And again, a house is supposed to be this, like, thing that's like, you know, it's supposed to, you know, we're supposed to feel like we're safe. It's a place we trust, a place that we feel like we can escape to. 
And in Salem's Lot, this this Marston house is very much like it is like this it is the root of evil within the community. Right. And in poltergeist, like it's interesting too, because like it's a different kind of evil, but there very much is this evil presence that's con- like contained within this small suburban domicile, like yeah. in the middle of like this community, and all hell is breaking loose because of what's happening inside this house. So it's like it there's like a, this interesting through line where I was like thinking about it more where I'm like, I could see why Toby, you know, maybe was like, Oh, this is almost like building from like stuff that we explored in Salem's lot. Again, I, I wish he was here. I I could literally have like a five hour conversation about just these two, like those two movies alone with him and not even bring up Texas Chainsaw. Um, because there's just, we were so, you know, at the post, you know, Vietnam and like heading into the eighties and going into consumerism and everything. Like the idea of like a home being like your refuge, these things that you work towards and yet these things can turn on you and it's all fake. Like it's all Mm -hmm. fake. Mm -hmm. Um, It's just really fascinating to me, but it was never done in a way that ever felt super obvious or heavy handed. But when you look at it now, you're like, Oh, that's kind of intriguing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because usually, like when you're watching horror movies, especially through the '70s and stuff, other than Halloween, it was like most of the time when people were like teens or whoever were getting into trouble, it's because they go somewhere they're not supposed to be, right? Or they're traveling somewhere that they don't really know. Like, you know, these are two movies where you can't escape the evil because it's existing within your community, right. which is kind of fascinating. Yeah, Toby was obsessed with. I, I, I'm sure I brought this up on past podcast i think even on the eggshells podcast i brought it up because of that thing in the basement but like what stephen king called the bad place uh and this is like the ultimate bad place story you know uh, almost every single toby hooper movie can be traced back to the the trope of the bad place um so i i see why this would appeal to him but as you point out, unlike something like Texas Chainsaw, where we go to the bad place here, the bad place comes to us and starts infecting our town and our loved ones, which is such a Stephen King idea. Uh, and so the marriage of Toby Hooper to that particular Stephen King trope, uh, I think, works really, really well here. Yeah. And I also think, like, again, too, like in the book, there's like, all the stuff that like happened at the Marston house, you know, originally like back in the day when it was first built and everything like that, like it's, it's just, it's not a sizable amount, but it's like a decent amount of the book. Like where you're like, you kind of go back in like this like flashback series, you know, about like what happened and everything. And I think the way that Toby like breaks it down is really smart where he's driving home this idea of like, it's not just these guys who showed up to live in the house. It's the house. Right. And this house has power. Yeah. Um, and I think the way that it's presented here in uh, the miniseries is really smart because it just, it's enough information without like having to really like take an extra 30 minutes to do it. Um, and it gives you enough to know that like something's wrong, you know? Yes, these guys are wrong, but there's that, that house, it's the house. right? And unless they do something about the house itself, like that's that and hmm. i always wondered too because like um i mean i know we have a return to salem's lot um which i've seen which and is, don't remember i just remember sam fuller playing like a crazy character it's it's goofy larry cohen-ness yeah right i've only seen it maybe like three times okay i've um, seen it once the first time i remember seeing it i was like i was insulted as a fan. <laughs> i was like what is this I think also, too, because, like, the artwork for, like, the VHS or something has Barlow on it, and there's Barlow's not in it. No. And I was like, what is going on? Um, I was like, did he survive? Like, no, it's, yeah. it has nothing to do with him. Um, but once I kind of, like, adjusted to the movie that Cohen was trying to make, and he understood the, the dark undercurrents of humor that could happen in a situation like that, I was like, okay, relax, Heather. You know, once you kind of get that, like, but the first time I was like, oh my God, this is the worst thing I've ever seen. 
Well, it was, kind, it was like honestly, it was like watching Howling Two for the first time. Right, not to right. get ahead of ourselves, but this is—I mean, this is the leap from Texas Chainsaw to Texas Chainsaw Two. The difference is that it's the same guy making both movies, and so everybody yeah. assumed like Toby had just lost it. But no, he just—he might have. He just was doing <laughs> something different. No. Yeah. No, totally. I don't mean like he lost it. I mean, he just might have been, you know, drinking too much Dr. Pepper and hanging out with Dennis Hopper a little too long. Well, maybe. You know, could you, I, I know we're going to talk about when we get there. Can you just imagine what those conversations were like? I, I would give anything to like, you know, what just like a regular everyday conversation was on the set between Toby Hooper and Dennis Hopper. Cause I know Toby's like very soft spoken. Mm-hmm. And I know Dennis Hopper is like kind of like an out there eccentric who like, I, from what I remember, like reading, like during Speed, like he would ask people like these most crazy, like out of the blue questions ever, and like spark these really crazy conversations about like the meaning of life and shit. And I'm like, I just want to know if that was a thing that happened. I really <laughs> do. Um, Dennis Hopper has called Texas Chainsaw Two the worst movie he ever made. Oh man, that's that's not true. No, <laughs> he made some shitty movies, and Texas Chainsaw is not one of them. Texas Chainsaw 2, I should say. Um, here's yes. an important question. Yeah. Uh, if you were married to George Zunza, would you leave him for a 70s Fred Willard? Mm, maybe. I don't know. See, I <laughs> um, I like burly dudes, though. So Okay, okay. But, I mean, I get it. 70s Fred Fred Willard, you know, something to write home about, you know. <laughs> I mean, he's he, and he's a real estate magnet, basically. It's, it's yeah. a, that community standards, like he's right. the guy, right? Oh, so, you know, he's making money, he's making bank. <laughs> um, he's you know, not terrible to look at, you know. I don't know. What was funny about this is like this is such a stupid aside. So like for me, I'd never known anybody with the name Collie. Like, this was, like, the only Cully I ever knew. And then eventually, like, in, like, 2008, I actually made friends with this dude who, like, ended up, like, saving my life during my divorce. But his name was Cully. And all I could just think about was Cully from Salem's Lot. And I don't think <laughs> I ever called him that still. And that was, like, 15 years ago. But I've never told him, be like, you know what I think of every time I say Cully? I'm like, I think of Cully Sawyer. <laughs> um, I, I don't know much about the casting of the movie, but I do like to believe that Toby was instrumental in casting Marie Windsor because he's such like a classic movie fan, particularly like old film noir. And she was such a a staple of those movies that it makes me happy to see her in this. Oh, for sure. She's so good. And the funny thing is, is that we get this, this story from um, Susan's dad, um, Bill, um, when he's talking about uh, Eva Miller, when she's like younger and stuff. So if you go and look at, like at a picture of Marie Windsor when she was like you know in her twenties or thirties, yeah. Yeah, yeah, the story works like right. you could picture it so perfectly. Yeah, like she was a bombshell. Yeah, for sure. Of an actress, and she was a firecracker on screen. Yeah. Um, I'd only ever seen um, Force of Evil. Okay. So I feel bad. Um, but I I I think a couple sometime in point. At some point last year, HBO Max had the killing. Yes. Um, on it, and I don't think it's on there anymore because they get like the TCM stuff here and there. So, um, gotta, but, yeah. gotta see the killing because not only is she incredible in it, uh, but also she like bullies the shit out of. I want to say Elisha Cook Jr., who also shows oh, up in yes. Salem's Lot. <laughs> Measle Phillips, yes. Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So him being cast like as her like former right. lover. Right. Oh my god. So it definitely totally makes sense. I didn't realize they were in that together. Yeah. Perhaps if we'd been writing about 70s horror recently, I may have made that connection a little better. If I feel only. like I'm off my game. I know. I weirdly um, would but... not be interested in writing about 70s horror. Isn't that weird? I think I'd be too intimidated, to be really honest. Yeah, maybe that's the problem with me, too. But I just, I, like, I, I love and respect a lot of it, but I don't connect to it the same way I do 80s and 90s. Maybe just because of what I was raised on. Yeah, I think for me, like, if I had to write about, like, Invasion 78, yeah, that would be one of the hardest things for me to write. Because, like... Well, how do you oof. write about Last House on the Left? Yeah. Exactly. I think, you, I think you just go with the filming facts on that one. <laughs> yikes 
Yes. <laughs> they use real um, pee. Oh, God. Oh, <laughs> fantastic. Terra Trivia, did you know? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I don't want to write that sentence. No, I um, don't either. Bring on yeah, the 90s. I think, for, <laughs> I think also, too, because like you talk about sort of the love of like classic cinema yeah. things like that like james yeah. mason was like a guy yeah 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 you know obviously sure. yeah. you know north obviously like north by northwest or uh heaven can wait which was like right before this like how you go from doing like heaven can wait and then you're like i'm gonna go do salem's lot like that's <laughs> so fascinating to me because like so many times when like actors start to get into their oscar baby roles like they kind of stay there right yeah um and like now no, he just was like, I'm gonna go make Salem's Lot, and we are better for it. But I love James Mason in the movie. Like every time he just says anything, like it's like it's burning my thing. Like when I was saying candor, like the way he says candor in this movie, like that's how I say it whenever <laughs> I get to say that word in real life. And I will find ways to work it in into conversations. I respect. Um, that. it's yeah, it's kind of like oh my god, what's the word from Heather's? Uh, um, what? There was like a thing where she was like, when the the girl does the suicide now, and they're like, oh, could she use the word? Oh shoot! I know exactly what you're talking about, and I will not come up with it. Uh, it's it's in the back of my head. I think it's because I played trivia last night. My brain's a little brain broken, but like seriously, if you go back and look at the things that I wrote over the years, once a week I would work that word myriad. Oh, myriad. Nice, I nice. would. Every week in my life as a journalist, if you go back and look, I would work the word myriad into one of my articles. <laughs> I'm not even joking. Um, so there's like, there's certain delivery or certain ways that words are presented in different things that will carry me in candor. And how uh, will always forever be burned in my brain because of James Mason. And he's so good. Yeah. He is so good. Again, I, I you know, I think one of the things that works about the movie and, and I have already said my piece about the casting of David soul, who I don't, I did not mind this time, but I think he just ends up being a little bit outshone because Toby Hooper clearly loves character actors so much. Yeah. And he casts so many great character <laughs> actors. And I, part of that is I think a specific shorthand because you're trying to populate this world with memorable human beings. And so one way you do that is to cast these great character actors who can get the job done in just a few lines of dialogue. Um, but everywhere you look in this movie is somebody that you're just like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe you're showing up in this. And everyone just totally knocks it out of the park. Um, James Mason seems to be there like to give it a little bit of uh, prestige. Wait. It's yeah. all weight, right? Right, right. That it's like we're we're more than just a made for TV movie. We've got James Mason. Um, everybody else is either, you know, not who they would become yet, whether it's like Bonnie Bedelia, uh, or some famous character actor from the past. And the the combination I think works really well. Yeah, I think for me, like what what's really cool about Salem's lot. Um, it's the fact that you have these characters that like you fall in love with, you're so immersed in, in their human form. So when they transform, it's like trauma. Yes. Um, I think for me, like, yeah, the, the floating, uh, Glick boys in front of the window literally is the reason why since age five, I do not sleep with a window with a curtain open. Never will never have. Nope. Not doing it. Cause I can't see the vampires outside my window. If I keep my windows, if I keep my curtains closed. Yeah. Um, Perhaps Sam should have learned that in Lost Boys. Um, <laughs> <laughs> also in that, uh, it's a Salem's Lot. Yeah. Um, but to me, Jeffrey Lewis's transformation in this movie, uh, when Mike Ryerson is sitting there in that rocking chair, and it's like a good 30 seconds where he's just rocking. Yeah. And like the whole time, like, you're, you're sitting there and you're like, he's going to do something. He's going to do something. <laughs> and, and and Jason Burke is standing there and he's waiting and he's holding a crucifix, but he's rocking with him, which is like this, such a beautiful little thing. Cause he's, he's now sort of almost under the spell 
of Mike Ryerson. Like, and then he just slowly looks up, but he still doesn't even open his eyes yet. And then it hits, and it's just that reflective eye, like the reflective lenses. Holy crap! It's like I, it's perfect. Yeah. Like that to me is like, oh, when you talk, like yes, Barlow, the imagery of Barlow. There's so many great things that are so iconic to me about that performance, his presence. But like, oh, that rocking chair scene. Ooh, that is like, I love it so much. It's so well executed. And these days, it would literally just be like a 10 second beat. Right. Which again, I think maybe makes me a little nervous about the, the New Salem plot, but I'm, I'm, I'm still giving Doberman the doubt. Benefit of the doubt. Well, and I'm just reminded of how like not precious Stephen King is about his characters. Um, because he will make you fall in love with characters, he'll get you attached to characters, and then kill them off in tragic ways in surprising ways sometimes you think you're like past all the bad shit and then he'll still kill a character <laughs> i remember yeah no totally uh, i mean obviously it happens in salem's lot um barlow is dead and we're like okay thank god that's over and then we're still gonna kill a beloved character uh reading under the dome it's like we get to the end of the book and we think we're like past all the bad shit and still one character just like asphyxiates and dies on the other side of the dome and it's like oh my god this is punishing i haven't done under the dome yet it's really good until the end which is true of of so many stephen king books he he struggles with endings in a big big way but up until the end and i did not watch the miniseries so i cannot speak to it because i didn't want it in my head uh, because I why you read the book, yeah. I liked the well, no, I had already read the book, but I just liked oh, the book okay. so much that I just I didn't I didn't watch the James Franco Kennedy one. I didn't watch like I haven't watched the ones in recent years because I really like the books and I just don't want them spoiled. Um, if it would have been Dave Franco, I would have watched. Uh, perhaps he's the, better, he's the better Franco. He always well, has been. If if forced to choose a Franco, I'm going Dave. Oh yeah, hands down. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the under the hours. <laughs> uh, I like that movie. Yeah, it's silly fun. Um, under the dome again until the botched ending is like much closer to like it and the stand and like one of those great books um, than some of the more minor key ones. But then the ending kind of fucks it up. Yeah, I I get it. I I still. I still don't like the pet cemetery ending in the book makes sense. I, I don't, don't even remember it. the ending in the book. I read the yeah, book. I don't, yeah. I went through a phase like where for a while I was getting to actually go back and reread a bunch of Stephen King. Yeah. Um, I mean, Christine's pretty on par with the movie. Um, Man, if there wasn't like a million Stephen King podcasts right now, I'd be like, oh, we should totally do <laughs> Stephen King adaptations. Well, just <laughs> as an excuse to read them again, you know? Oh God, because I just I love I love it I love it so yeah, much. Yeah, me too. Um, yeah, I mean, I think this is. I mean, other than the the, the epilogue of this, or like sort of the that final yeah. catching up with them in Guatemala, um, I think it's structured differently in the book. It's been like four years since I last reread it. Um, I think just for me that rereading the 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 backstory of Jerusalem's lot is it really struck me um and that's what really stuck with me more so than it had like the other times i'd read it okay um and then they just announced that series when they announced that series i was like oh that's so fascinating yeah i never got to watch it um (laughs) but yeah i think you know i i think overall like so many people have said like pet cemetery is like the most faithful stephen king adaptation and i mean i think there's a really strong argument for salem's lot to be in that conversation because it just feels like you feel like you're really in the the version of Maine that was in Stephen King's head while he was writing it. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree with that. Do you know what I mean? Like, I, I mean, yeah. I think story beat wise, yes, Pet Cemetery definitely gets the job done. I mean, it omits some 
backstory and things like that that they don't really go into that much well he also adapted it himself which is a different story you know totally and also too salem's lot had you know a lot more time to do it than right cemetery did right which is also another you know consideration to make um but yeah when you talk about like the most faithful adaptations that feel like like i feel like i'm walking around in stephen king's brain while i'm like watching it you know what i mean like um, yeah, I think I think this is right up there for me. So this is your favorite of the Toby Hoopers we've done thus far. It is, yeah. Yeah. All right. I know it's such blasphemy. You can you can yell. It's at not me blasphemy at all. Time. No. I mean, it just for me, like it's such a world that I just I want. Like also to the fact that they shot it in like California, and the fact that I haven't been there yet. Just, <laughs> it's far so unfortunately we have a very long state and it takes a while to get places but i want to go there like so bad i mean i know the marston house facade isn't there for obvious reasons because they built it around a house um but i know a lot of like the small town stuff is still there so uh, the next two we do the next two we're gonna do or, or the next two we're gonna do are gonna be particularly fun because they're back-to-back favorites Right? Yeah. We get to well, do is mine. Is Funhouse and... before Poltergeist? Yeah. Oh, yes. But I'm saying we get to do mine and then yours. We're living large right now. Yeah, we, we really, really are. are. Yeah. We, we, we're, we're doing it. This, we're about to enter like my favorite period of Toby Hooper because we go right from the favorites into the canon years. So I'm in heaven for the next like six shows. I won't lie. I'm nervous about the 90s Toby stuff, but. Yeah. Uh, I will say I did like them. I did like the Mangler better the last time I rewatched it than I did the first time I ever saw. I love the Mangler. So, I'm not yet to love with like Night Terrors and uh, a couple other. Well, we'll have to do Body Bags, right? That'll be fun. Yeah, yeah. Because so he directed like we get, to, like, get into the John Carpenter. Yeah, we yeah. get to dip into John Carpenter waters for that one. Nice. Yeah. Um. Well, it was super fun talking about this movie with you. Thank you. Thank you. Are you kidding? I'm. I'm. This was like, I'm actually watching it while we're talking about it. By the way, that's amazing. I have it on very low in the background <laughs> right now. They they just opened they just opened the shop. Oh, very we're nice. Talking about the talking about the English silver. If Stephen King announced tomorrow that he was writing like a sequel that talked about like the vampire hunting years of Ben Mears and Mark Petrie, would you be so excited? I literally would pre-order that sight unseen. Yeah. Yes. Because like for me, as a, especially as a kid, when a return to Salem's Lot was announced, I didn't really know much about it, but I was like, Salem's Lot, well, obviously at the end of the, the original miniseries, they're setting it up right. for, you know, for Bart, for Mark and Ben to like go off and hunt vampires. Maybe they're coming back to Salem's Lot to make sure that the work has been done. And it was not, it was not no. that movie. Um, yeah, I absolutely want thousand percent would be in um because i think this was like his second book if i'm not mistaken um and it took him a long time to go back to the shining so i think we're due i think yeah. i think it's time mr king i obviously you're listening we know that um <laughs> yes it is time i like it all right well thank you everybody for listening uh we will be back next month with the fun house and uh until then thanks again heather thank you patrick for your candor